close and secure all possible entrances to your home. Switch off all lights. Do not look out of any windows. Do not respond to any knocks on your windows or doors until the all clear is given. Remain silent at all times. Like, this dude's too cool for long sentences. He said the key words. He said, streaming live around the world, this is Paper Cuts. We call it a poop bag. With Brad and Jay. Yeah, it's got a new show. It came to you, like, basically straight from my brain. And we're not going to have those devil books in here. We are live. All right, here we go. The moment everyone's been waiting for. For years and years. It's your favorite <laughs> live, I don't know, minutes maybe. <laughs> your favorite live bo- podcast is ready. My name is Jay. Thanks for joining us. That's Brad as always. But you know, enough about us because we are in the presence of literary royalty. Everyone in the chat, and I see they're all coming in right now. Let's give a warm welcome to the one and only Joe R. Lansdale. What's going on, Joe? That's where we should do like an an applause. An applause track. We can't afford that. Not in the budget. (laughs) How are you doing, Joe? There you go. Yeah, exactly. We'll get all our kids to come in and clap in the background. Right. All your kids, right. No, I'm doing good. I hope you guys are. Doing good. What would you normally be doing on a Friday night instead of talking to two bozos with microphones right now? Well, uh, probably by this time, we often watch a movie or TV shows, and then I read before bed, and I read during the day, and I write in the early mornings, and I do martial arts, uh, uh, teach martial arts once a week still, and, uh, you know, a variety of different things, uh, because I've got a lot more flexibility because of my job, and because three hours a day is my normal work time, there's there's a lot of room. Uh Do you normally try to write every day? I do. Yes, I do try to write every day. It's rare that I miss a day. It usually has to do with something beyond my power. And when I was traveling, and of course with COVID, we haven't been doing much in the way of traveling. But when I was traveling, I took my laptop with me and uh, carried it with me wherever I went. And I'd grab a few minutes here and there. So I was constantly working. I've started taking a little more time off. Mm -hmm. uh, And this year I may be taking a little more time off because I'm sort of recalibrating on a number of things that I'm working on and planning to do. But uh, so far I haven't really done that. Yeah. I've got up every morning and worked, you know, so it's hard for me to break a habit of a lifetime of working daily and I don't want to break it, but I thought right. of, of, you know, a little bit of a break <laughs> would be a bad idea. I, I think that's why a lot of people don't retire because they're like, what, are, what am I going to do with my time once I retire? Yeah. You know, so yeah. Something like writing, a wild you, know, you, you keep everything moving. So Right. I, I think the movie, The Wild Bunch, he said something about retiring. He said, retired of what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I sort of feel that way myself. I mean, I, I fortunately, you know, my family is great, whatever, but they're all working too. You know, they're, we, we, uh-huh. it's a creative uh, bunch, you know, for that matter. Uh, my wife is sort of retired. She handled my business and things like that for a long time. And, you know, she founded the Horror Writers Association and um, lots of other stuff that, that she's done. So we've all stayed busy the entire time. And I don't intend to, to cease working um, unless I just can't work. I mean, I always said, I don't plan to retire, but life will retire me. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think my father-in-law, he's retired like three times from three different jobs. And he just keeps going back because he just he can't <laughs> sit at home and, and sit still. He has to be a busybody doing something. So he just keeps yeah, doing what's something. What's in that? Yeah. 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 So I, you're, I like you're still creating. going okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I'm so, so that means, so like that means we got a lot more books coming from you. Yeah, it gives me reason to get up in the morning and have all those books coming or short stories. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or, or I even have poetry, a book of poetry, which I never planned to do. And there's my friend Mike Casto. Hi, Mike. But uh, I never plan to uh, retire if I can still keep doing. I'm martial arts, I probably will retire from in about five years uh, because I, I want to focus on a lot of other things. And I've, I started when I, I was 11, so if I retire then, I've certainly put in my miles on that. Oh, yeah. I'll be 75 <laughs> at that point. And who knows? You know, I don't I, <laughs> I never know. Just keep pushing it back a little bit and a little bit. <laughs> as long as I'm physically capable. And, and that's the that's the cool thing, thing I am. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate in that respect. What, what's and the age of the uh, martial arts you teach? Are they just young kids you or adults? Students? Or? Yes. I don't teach kids, but there are um, kids, you know, that are taught there by some of the other students. I, I don't teach them. I teach adults only. And it's a very it's a self-defense class primarily. And mm -hmm. uh but I think they do have a, a maybe twice a week children's class. I don't okay. run that part of it anymore. I, I stepped out of that and just teach my classes and the students took over that. Yeah. Like I was telling you before the show, my six year old, he started you know, four or five, six months ago and he's really enjoying it so far. He's got the, whatever the belt is above white belt, it's like white with the green little threads through it. They vary in now. different systems. Right? I think yeah. I just saw Margaret that was on here too, a friend of a friend of mine. So, hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's Margaret. I, I, that's, she retired two weeks ago. <laughs> Mike says he uh, that he wants her to edit him. Mike uh, Casto is also a writer, does some, uh, you know, work besides teaching martial arts and different things, mm -hmm. computer work and stuff. Yeah. So retirement is not, not big on the agenda. I would say it's hard to retire being a creative. Like those stories don't just stop coming. Like you can't just shut that valve off and right. Like you have to still have that creative <laughs> output to do something. The the interesting thing about that, having talked to a lot of older writers before I was an old writer, uh, and most of them, when they tell me this, they're in their eighties, is that the creativity doesn't necessarily stop, but the willpower to get it done does. And it's yeah. harder to get it done. And the and some of the energy flags. I, I've always thought it's not so sad if you still have the ability to do it and you don't mind not doing it. It's only sad mm -hmm. if you have the ability to do it or, or you don't have the ability to do it and you still want to. That's yeah, that's right. the that would be the tough part. I think Hammett talked about that, Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, we, we, we talked to uh, uh, Ronald Kelly uh, a few months back. He's, he's got the same mm -hmm. outlook on it. He's like, he said, he's writing the most stuff right now. Like, like this year, he's going to have so many releases. You know, you, you think he's yeah. like a brand new person, but he's got so many, because he's got so many ideals just wanting to get out there. So, and he's in his 60s right now, too. So, right. He, there, there's well, no know, sign my, of my retirement. Most, so, right. My most prolific time in my life was in my 60s. Yeah. You know, I, I turned out more material and screenplays and you know uh comic books and novels and short stories and nonfiction and poetry and uh, i mean i can't even believe all the stuff that that i've written and but especially in the time i turned 60 i didn't slow down i sped yeah. up and it surprised me you know and i first started feeling i never felt old at all until i hit 65 and then it's sort of like i 
I felt, and I, wait a minute, what's, what is this? What is this? <laughs> this, doesn't this doesn't seem right. And uh, so, but, but I still, I still turned out a lot and I still do. Being able to do that is both a blessing and a curse, you know, uh-huh. and thank you, LJ. Uh, but it's uh, both a blessing and a curse because, you know, you, if you like to write like I do, you write a lot. Mm-hmm. And that works well for you because you got a lot of stuff out there and a lot of readers. But if you're like me and you like to write in a lot of different genres and different areas, right. uh, it can hurt you, for, you know, to some degree. But I don't care. That's what I do, you know, and it's yeah. it's how I stay in- interested. I've written everything from horror to crime to mystery to suspense to science fiction to, you know, you name it. Historical. Got some Westerns in there, too, don't you? Right. Yeah, Westerns. They've even done a couple of like romantic short stories and. I've written for literary magazines. I've written for pulp style magazines. Um, uh-huh. I love it all. And I'm influenced by all so much of it. And I don't, when I say I love it all, I don't mean I like everything, but I love all kinds of genres. And I've really yeah. uh, felt good about that. And I've got to work in film and TV and animation mm-hmm. for Batman, the animated series. So I have had one hell of a life and a good career, you know, yeah. so I'm not complaining. So you probably don't have like a favorite genre then you just, as long as you're doing not really. whatever you like, you know, you know, I, I think I feel when I'm writing one, I, I, I think about the other, you know, uh-huh. when I'm working on one, I'm also <laughs> thinking about the other, but I, so um, your, your brain's so far ahead of itself. So it's just right. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think I could pick one actually, but I really love things about the old West. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. big, big, love of mine but i still even then i wouldn't want to write historicals or westerns all the time either right yeah because you get burnt out on doing the same thing like you can have different stories you do the same genre you get that burnout right you know what's weird about horror is i guess the drive-in is kind of a horror novel and Mm -hmm. maybe night runners could be then dead in the west but really those are about the only horror novels i've written uh, most of what my recognition as a horror writer comes from short stories and I've written a lot of those. Uh, yeah. but I carried over the tools from horror into some of the crime fiction, you know, even if mm-hmm. it's not supernatural, right. Which, you know, I like supernatural for me, supernatural is fun, but the other stuff, uh, is to me, I think more appealing is a sort of realistic horror, like, uh, yeah. uh, in cold blood by Truman Capote and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, when I really look at it, I haven't written that much in, in, in lengthy horror. And part of that is because I think horror works best in short stories. It doesn't mean exclusively, but mostly, uh-huh. uh, I'd rather read a short story. Most novels wear out with me maybe halfway. If I get that far on them, then I'm, I don't care, but short stories, yeah. they can come in and do it. But uh, a good horror novel is different, but I find that crime and suspense lends itself quite well to novels the same way with historicals and, and Westerns. And, uh, so I, for me, I think that's how I feel about it. Others may have a totally different, you know, conclusion for that, but like Ron, you know, I'm, I'm a pro I've been around a long time. I write for the love of it. And, uh, I've learned to write for myself and I've learned to write like everybody I know is dead, which is a quote I use all the time (laughs) because I'm not trying to figure out what anybody else wants. I'm, I'm writing for me, not, or my relatives or friends or, or agents or whatever. And if, if, if I get a contract and it says I've got two suspense novels, two crime novels, I know that they're going to have those elements, but I don't try to figure out what everybody wants to make those elements satisfying to them. I, I'm trying to satisfy me. Yeah. I feel right. like if you, if you're trying to write for other people, 
then you're never going to be satisfied with it yourself. I'm never going to be, you can't please everybody. Just, you know, be logical. Yeah. You, you know, you can't be universally admired. You just have to write your own stuff. I'm glad you said that, you know, like a horror novel, like you'll get, you get, you fall out of it halfway. That's why I kind of like the horror novellas because it's almost like a perfect, link, yeah. you know, novellas and, are pretty perfect for most everything. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we Jacob bears them a lot to, uh, yeah. You know, horror novellas being like a 90 minute horror movie, which is about on par for what you want for a horror movie most of the time. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that you know, I, I think my favorite for short stories is it tends tends to be short, but novella mm-hmm. length works pretty well. I think when you get past that, there are exceptions. There's some some of my favorite horror reading has been novels, you know, and and right. some of them have been big, thick ones. So I'm not saying that 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 as a, an absolute or exclusively, but I'm saying more often than not, I find that's what happens. And um, when I find one that I you know can't put down, that's wonderful. But yeah. I think the other thing too about being a writer for so long and being a reader for so long, because I read a lot still, but having done that, it's harder to satisfy you because you uh-huh. pick up something you've already read it, and oh, yeah. uh, you know it's just a version of that. And, and what really changed for me more than anything else is the prose. I, I, I want to read somebody that writes well, that has a voice, that has an attitude, that has an ability to handle dialogue and characterization and just the sound of the words and atmosphere. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. have that, the story itself no longer pulls me. I'm sure yeah. there's an exception here and there, but mostly I'm just, I don't care what happens next because I, I can't chew on it any, you know? Yeah. I've, I've sort of gotten burnt out with haunted house stories. Like the ones I've read recently, they all sort of feel the same and none of them really jump yeah. out, like have great characters or, and that can be with anything, yeah. you know, slasher, slashers or right. monster of the week right. or whatever. It's so weird because, you know, what I was first known for was kind of Southern Gothic stuff. And I did mm-hmm. that so much that it began to, you know, just pain me and wear me out. So I kind of went into writing more supernatural. I've written some haunted house stuff, not much, but I've written some, but I, I love to read a good one. And I find that if you want to read a good haunted house story, you have to read the Victorian stuff that, yeah. that, that was, those were the best haunted house stories and they're exceptions of course, but I just take a break and go back and read the old classic horror stories. And it's odd because in the eighties, me and several others, we were, we broke a lot of rules and we did a lot of things different, but also I think you've got to go back and look at the classics. I get so sick of lists of the classic novels and there's nothing older than four years old you know those aren't they're not all classic and four years old you know or, or it's right. when it just came out last week doesn't mean you can't list it as a good novel or feel it's a future classic but yeah. you know when you got really old books that are classics or that have influenced the genre even even if they don't mm-hmm. hold up in other ways the it's People don't know about them anymore. And it just, it saddens me. And they don't read outside their genres. They, they get la- And it's one reason people burn out on genres. It's one reason that the writing bur- burns out because they don't experience anything new. They don't get outside of that. It's always right. the same stuff. And I'll feel it myself because, you know, I've written five or six stories maybe in a row and I start to feel like I'm on a theme, which isn't bad unto itself, but I realize I need to change that. I need to get out and, and rethink and, kind of uh, recalibrate and try to find another way of telling stories so that I don't mm-hmm. just wear me out. You know, that's yeah. the thing. If I wear me out, then, 
And, and then the other thing too, is when you've been doing it as long as I have, I can, I can mechanically write a story without any effort and it'll be a good story and it'll hold up, but it's not the same. It's lacking something. And so sometimes yeah. you have to be able to build a chair as they used to say. And then other times you're trying to build a cathedral, you uh -huh. know, even if it's in a short story. So it takes a different mindset and you should be able to do both, both, but you don't want to get latched into just building chairs. Yeah. There's sort of that, uh, just doing the bare bones and then actually putting the passion behind it. Sort of the difference between the two. Right. I was and I don't even, read a, I don't go ahead. You, you don't, you pants everything. Yeah. I was nice. going to say, I did read wow. a really good haunted house story at the beginning of the year. Inheriting your ghost by SH Cooper was really fantastic. And that one stood out above. Okay. And like I said, not that I'm against haunted house stories. They just, and with anything like no, I know exactly feel... what you mean. I, I love yeah. them all. You know, some of my favorite books are haunted house uh, books and some of my favorite short stories are, but I go through periods where I get washed out on the Victorian stuff. One day I'll get up and I'll think I'm, that's it. I'm out. And then I'll <laughs> come back to it you know, maybe six months, maybe four or five years um, later. But yeah, I'm a, I, I guess I never liked that term pantser. I don't know. I, I know what it oh, means, yeah. but I've always felt that I'm that I plot subconsciously. I've taught my subconscious to work a long time ago to keep me mm -hmm. from feeling stressed every day, thinking about stories where I couldn't go on with my life and be proper with my family and and be able to do other things. And so I've taught myself subconsciously to think about stories. That doesn't mean that it doesn't occasionally bubble up and, you know, is, is in the open for me to go. Oh, yeah, look at that. That's a great idea. But yeah, generally. I go to bed at night and the well fills up and then I get up in the morning <laughs> and I write the exceptions to that are when I collaborate with somebody, you almost have to have at least some general approach or you're riding off in two directions. That's why I don't collaborate much. Uh, I do yeah. some, I've done it with my kids now. And then screenplays are different because you're really, that's a community experience anyway. So when you're doing mm -hmm. that, you know that you have limitations, you know that you have limitations of the kind of, film that they're looking for, what the director wants, what the producer wants, what some money provides. And then when they start shooting it, the weather can change things. I mean, there's so yeah. many factors. You have to look at that as a, as a group endeavor. You know, there yeah. are, there are very few auteurs really. And uh, even if you write the script and direct it and produce it, you still, the actors are going to interpret it their way. Even when you're trying to get them to interpret a certain way, they're still going to interpret it their way. The sets are going to look like what the sets look like. There will be what you can find that's serviceable within the budget that you have. So you're working yeah. in a different, different mindset there. And anytime you're collaborating or working with more than one person, that changes the other. And I like doing all of it to some extent, but there's nothing more satisfying to me than getting up and just saying, I wonder where this is going to go today. Yeah. That always blows my mind as a non-writer. You know, I write reviews, but I don't write stories that an author can be writing a story and they don't even know where it's going to go. Like Brian Boyer, right. one of a, a friend of ours, an author, he just, he surprises himself writing stories all the time. And to me, that's just mind boggling. Like, how can you surprise yourself when you're the, supposed to be the one in control, knowing everything that's happening? That just, that's crazy. Well, your subconscious probably does know some of that. Uh, yeah. It just hasn't revealed it to you yet. You know, it's like mm -hmm. I say, when I go to sleep at night, the well fills up. And when I get up in the morning, I'm ready to go. You know, and sometimes I don't even feel like I'm ready to go until I sit down and then it's just like it just pours out. So it's why yeah. I don't procrastinate. I've learned there's no satisfaction in procrastination. The satisfaction mm -hmm. is from doing it. And when you do it, you feel great. So with you saying all of that, you're ready to go in the mornings. 
do you feel like with being in the business so long that you that everything you write has to be a hit or does that even matter no, anymore? I definitely don't do that. I okay. I know I never try to top myself in the one before. I never try to think, is this the big one? Because sometimes I don't want to write the big one. I want to write what I want to write. And I, I go through moods where I want to write something light something fun i want to write something for a small press that i it doesn't mean it's lesser because it's a small press but i know right. that mm-hmm. you know even though i'm writing for me i know that i'm going to have a better um uh i i guess a better job by doing it that way because that's what they specialize in because i have these this character called ned the seal and that's not going to be uh you know <laughs> big time. I, I could yeah. maybe sell it to to them but they wouldn't know what to do with it and uh, i don't know what to do with it so i write it and uh, i'll have small presses that have the ability to know how to market that and get mm-hmm. people who want to read it and give an opportunity for something that's unusual or something that i don't write regularly because I, I don't really write anything regularly so but there are some things you know even though you, you, you know, you just feel driven to write them, you, you know, when you get through, you go, well, I didn't write this for anybody but me. But now that I'm done, I'm going to market it and hope it sells well, hope it mm-hmm. finds its audience. That's when you want to do it. So what is what is Ned the Seal? Is that from a story? Oh, there's three novels about Ned the Seal. Those were okay. done for um, subterranean press and they're about a seal who has had his brain enhanced on the island of Dr. (laughs) Momo. And, uh, but they're, they're entirely farce. They're fun. They're satire. They're farce. They're, uh, they're like the cartoons between the, you know, the, the features. Oh yeah. That's like the opposite end of the spectrum from what you'd get with happen litter novel. Or from the drive-in is somewhere else too. It's a, there's a novel, you know, the drive-in series, that's a totally different thing. And the magic uh-huh. wagon, the thicket and all those are different. And then the happen litter and, and other kinds of suspense things like the bottoms, uh, edge of dark water. None of those are actually, there's like groupings. I can find groupings, uh-huh. but I can't find a group. You were talking about earlier that you like to write in all different genres. Have you ever had like a publisher or anybody tell you, that that's a bad idea. Like you should focus in one and not spread yourself yeah. so thin like that. Yeah. I've been told that. Have you? And so you that, just, is that the worst advice you've ever heard? <laughs> <laughs> it was for me. I, you know, yeah. it, it, there, there are certain writers that I respect, but their books are designed to be the same book every time or some slight difference. Mm-hmm. And, and when you write a series that has happened later, there's going to be certain things that are going to reoccur because yeah. it's them. And they're going to have, and that's fine. That that's the, that's the comfortable house shoes, shoes element of them. But mm-hmm. even then I try to adventure out and do different things with them. And I don't write them and nothing else. You know, I write a lot of other things. I recently did moon Lake before that I did uh, more better deals, neither of which are like those at all. They're, they're crime, but they're very different. Moon Lake's really a Southern Gothic tall tale combined with mm-hmm. crime story. And I got one called Donut Legion coming out next year. That's about uh, a cult that worships flying saucers, and uh, they finance their cult with uh, donut shops. And uh, <laughs> you know they've got, they've, got some, they've got some bad ideas that are criminal. So that's uh, well, that's a different thing. That's that's somewhere in between being a, a serious novel and a fun novel. And I hope they're all fun. I never write anything for it to be dull. I mean, I enjoy yeah. reading Kafka. You know, and yeah. people talk, I just won't be entertained. Well, so do I. What kind of word is, what kind of comment is that? You think I just <laughs> want to be dull and nobody, nothing's fun. 
I'm just entertained by what entertains me and you're entertained by what entertains you. And it doesn't yeah. mean it's the same. thing. Yeah. No writer sets out to make a boring novel. At least they should. No, I'm a good writer. I mean, I'm good. I'm sure there's some really pretentious writers or something that fill <laughs> that, but you know, I, do, I don't think of myself as a hack or just an entertainer, but I don't think of myself as a purely social or political or, uh, you know, I guess, writer of importance. You hope you have importance in what you do, but I don't mm -hmm. think it, it's, again, you've got to write like everybody you know is dead. You can't let those things creep into how you think about writing. The story has to reveal that to you. And my subconscious is constantly, it's like a magpie. It flies around and picks a little here, picks a little there, puts it all in the nest. And uh, I, it, it, it tells me what it's about as it, as I sit down to write. When, when you're writing a book, when do you know uh, it's going to become a series? Like, do, do you get halfway through and think you should go farther or you don't? You know, Happen Learn is my most famous series, and I thought it was a standalone. I wrote a Savage Season book, and it wasn't until three, maybe four years. I don't remember exactly before the second one appeared, and I had no intention of writing another one. It's just the one I was writing on wasn't working well, and I put it aside, and then I just sat down and wrote Mucho Mojo in four months. And, mm -hmm. and uh, when I turned it in, they, they went nuts for it. And I realized, my God, I've got a series. Yeah, but, there you go. You know, <laughs> and the drive in, I wrote three of those, but I never thought of them as being a series, but they are. Same with Ned the Seal. I didn't know they're going to be a series. <laughs> you know. And short and stories, I had one around today still. So, yeah, I got the horror things about the uh, Reverend Mercer. It was supposed to be one book, Dead in the West, one of the few horror novels that I wrote. And uh, mm -hmm. I started writing novellas and short stories about the character. And before I know it, I knew it. I had a, I had a series and my daughter and I have a series that started out as me doing a one shot for myself and then a two shot. And then she and I wrote <laughs> one together and then and we borrowed uh, characters from the story we wrote together and my series and we put them together. And then that rest of the series were written by both of us, but there was no plan nice. to do that. So I wanted to ask, you know, as a parent, as a father, and me and Jay are both parents too, what was it like to have your kids sort of not follow in your footsteps? I don't want to say that because they're doing their own thing, but sort of take up the love of the genre and, and writing and being a creator like you are. Was that just like a cool well, moment for you to have your kids do that? I always thought they would be creative. I just didn't expect them to do writing and I never pushed them mm -hmm. to do writing. And I, you know, I always just told them, find out what you want to do and make yourself happy. Because I only ask one thing from both of you, and that's your character. I want your character to be good. Everything else yeah. is up to you, falls into place or it doesn't. But your character matters. Because most of the things that do fall into place, character has something to do with that. And yeah. um, my my daughter is a professional singer and songwriter. And that's she was, you know in love with that what she always wanted to do and she did it for years you know she she's uh john carter cash johnny cash's son was her producer she's got albums she's done really well and then when covid hit uh she was already doing like commercials and as as an actress in commercials and uh some little small film parts and and things like that you know she was in westworld she was the body double for the, oh, the that's main cool. lady i forget Rachel, for uh, Dolores, yeah, I think it's Dolores. And so, the main you know, character. She, yeah, I mean, for her real name, the actress, I think, was yeah. Rachel Wood. But I never, I never watched the series, so I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, she was always doing like that. But when COVID hit, a lot of that went out the window. 
So mm-hmm. now she's public relations for Tachyon Books, and she started yeah. a publishing company. And so, you know, I'm proud of her for that. My son is a stock, uh, I, I, I guess what you would call, what is that? He's, I guess he's a stock broker. I think that's fair. He's a stock broker, mm-hmm. and he also writes screenplays. He's had two movies made. He's written numerous comics. He's got, we co-wrote a novel. He's got a short story coming out. He's, and you know, he's writing all the time. He does stock bro- uh, broker stuff. And then he, then he writes. <laughs> so sometimes he'll go in the morning and write. Then, then he goes through the stock broker stuff because his office is, you know, in his home right now. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm proud of him because they found that way. My son started out in journalism. He worked in journalism mm-hmm. for four years and then he worked in writing PR stuff for, a. um, uh, a tourist railroad in, in East Texas, an old, you know, it was an old train that you could ride and like in the old days. And he worked on that and then he invented his own newspaper. In other words, they, they've constantly been creative because I think that's just part of them. And, uh, you know, my wife has just managed all that just beautifully for us until they went on their own completely. And, and, uh, you know, she's always handled my stuff until just recently I now have accountants and Casey has started handling some of that. And, giving uh, poor Karen a rest, you know, but she was always the brain <laughs> behind the operation. So is it, do you find it tougher to work with them, work since your kids? Like you, you put your foot down and say, this is what we're going to do no, now. <laughs> not really. I, I find it tougher to work with anybody. I don't, I don't like yeah. doing uh, collaborations, but I actually work with the kids real well, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, <laughs> Ethan and I have tremendous similarities and we have tremendous differences. Casey and I have tremendous similarities and we have tremendous differences, but <laughs> we where the similarities are is how we're able to hook into the stories. And then we, we bring new things, but I, I relearn a lot of stuff, you know, I Chad, uh-huh. <laughs> but I relearn a lot of stuff by working with, with them. And when I work in screenplays, I I'm, which I find a lot easier than, than fiction, but I still learn mm-hmm. new stuff and I learn better ways to handle my own, novels and short stories from from those experiences but if i collaborated all the time i wouldn't be worth a damn most of the time (laughs) when you collaborate you don't get something as good as either one of you could have done by yourself most of the time and i feel like it's good to work i feel like it's good to work with somebody that has those differences that than you because that just if you're gonna do it yeah if if you're you're all the same that it's may as well not work with anybody different I, i agree and um I guess the, the, and I used to work with Lou, Lou Shiner when we first started our career back in the seventies, when we were trying to write specifically for, for play, you know, what do they want? How do you do it? And that's how I learned that wasn't me. And that's how yeah. Lou learned that wasn't him either. We, we do our own thing, but we worked together and we fought it every inch of the way, but we came up with some good stories, but we were, I would do stuff like start writing and I would send it to him. I say, can you go with that? And he goes, no, I can't go with that. <laughs> I, what happens next? You know, so that's when I learned that not everybody did like I did. And I also mm-hmm. learned that even if they did, they're going to ride their horse in a different direction. And that's yeah. when I learned that in collaborations, I had to, you know, work in concert with somebody. And that's when I learned I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I think sometimes from the reader's standpoint, when they're reading something from uh, a, a collaboration, they can sometimes pick out who did what because if the styles are yeah. clashing too much and they don't really gel as much as you may think they they should i i it kind of yeah. removes the reader from it sometimes too because i've read some collaborations where yep. i'm like it it's a different voice it, it, when it happens you're like 
then you're kind of out of it. You know, you want to know what one person really thinks uh, uh, and the other person, what they think about it too. So yeah. Collaboration. Sometimes. Scary. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes though, I've, I've had people um, tell me I could tell where you were and where so-and-so was and, right. and it, they're wrong. It was the other way around. And, and that's probably because some instinct allows them to think somewhat like you and their pros to push somewhat like yours and you and do the same in reverse. There've right. also uh -huh. been times when uh, I've written something and Casey or Keith have made that same thing better with revisions and I've done vice versa with them. And so it's when a collaboration is really good, you can look at it and you can't really remember who did what because it begins yeah. to you know blend and become that one voice. And that's what you're looking for is to create right. a voice that may have similarities, but should be different. What Casey and I have the same sense of humor and the same flow of style uh, Keith and I have the same sense of humor in another area, another arena, and uh, our styles work a little less in concert, but after we get it going, then it, it's fine. Mm -hmm. So you talked about uh, Casey starting her own press. Is that Pandy Press? Yes, Pandy nice. Press. They're just now really diving into it in the last few weeks, past two or three weeks. It's been around a while, but it it was mostly there kind of to put two or three of my books in print that had been uh, lost because the publishers went out of business or something. And frankly, I'd gotten to that point where I, I'd, I'd sold a bunch of my backlist and, and, and uh, then I get the eBooks and I realized that now they're in print forever, as long as they can do one eBook. And oh that, yeah. That's not good. And they don't have limitations, but some of the smaller presses and things you have, you know, four or five years, you get your rights backed to the, to the property and you can stay with mm -hmm. them or you can move somewhere else, you know, and that's the way it ought to be, to be honest, this way it ought to be with the big ones, but publishing has just gotten so complex. It's not about how good a book is. It's how well they think they can sell that book. And I understand that because if, if you can't sell them, it's, it's not good. But on the other hand, if all you can do is sell them, it means a lot of crap can get out there too, because you, unless a, a reader is exposed to other things, they expect certain things. And so sometimes yeah. when you get out there and you find something different, that's what happened to me. I, um, as I got older and I just read more broadly, I realized, you know, I can do better than what I've done here in the seventies. I started selling in the seventies. I said, I can beat this. I can do better than this. Or this story that I like is a good story, but man, it's, it's crap as far as writing goes. And then I would look mm -hmm. at the literary stuff and I would say, now I, know why Hemingway's Hemingway. I know why Fitzgerald is Fitzgerald and Steinbeck is Steinbeck and Flannery O'Connor is Flannery O'Connor because they can write and they yeah. write scenes and they write beautiful prose. They write interesting dialogue, but you can borrow that and bring those elements into horror. And, and that's not to say that all horror writers or science fiction writers were crap. They weren't. There were some tremendously uh -huh. good ones, but there's no doubt in those genres, you didn't have to be as good prose-wise. Yeah. So what, you can look back on some of your earlier stuff now and realize that you're much stronger now. That you like it's one of those situations where if only you knew what you know now. I, I'm a better then. writer now than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, you wouldn't know what you know now without that. And uh, exactly. that's how you learn. I mean, some of this stuff is just awful, but it's, it's you know, you're <laughs> learning as you go and uh, you can never be too damn proud. 
know, because uh, it'll get knocked out from under you if, if you do. I mean, I'm proud of what I do, but I'm not prideful. You know, there's a difference. Uh-huh. You, I, I'm, there, there's nothing I've written that I'm ashamed of writing, but there's certainly some things better than others. And uh, oh, yeah. as I've gotten older, I think I handle prose better than ever. I think my imagination is better than ever. And it's a matter of whether your energy flags. And that's what happens when you get older. Like a lot of writers, the older writers I mentioned that I've spoken to in their 80s, especially, it's just that their energy flags, you know, and their desire flags. And when your energy flags, your willpower flags. So that's mm-hmm. that's what it can do to you. So always write like this is your last day. And you've got plenty of stuff to be proud of. You know, it's not just about getting it done. It's about getting it done as right. right as you possibly can. And also understanding that you'll never get it absolutely right. There's a lot of dead perfectionists without anything ever been published. <laughs> That's sort of a, well, Ronald Kelly, I think he tweeted it today or yesterday. Someone was saying he's putting out too many stories now, putting out too many stories this year. He was like, well, I'm getting older. You know, there's not, I can't sit around and, and hold these stories in. There's might not, much, not might, might not be that much time left. So I have to get them out when I can. Because he's he got like, I don't know, five, yeah. six books he's putting out this year know, or something crazy. All that kind of stuff is really, all that stuff is idiotic anyway. That You know, I, I have a writer that he just can't stand the fact that there's some people who can write fast and well. So we always, well, you know, I only write a few. And, and he's like, you know, he does a good job. It's not that. But writing slow mm-hmm. doesn't make you better necessarily. You may be just a good writer and write slow and there are a yeah. lot of bad writers who write fast but there are a lot of good writers who write fast uh there are probably more bad writers that write fast because they got more crap out out there for you to see <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is it, it has nothing to do with fast or slow unless it's sloppy fast but you can be sloppy slow just because mm-hmm. it takes you forever to get something done doesn't mean you're really you know putting it to it and i don't do multiple drafts I, I get yeah. diminishing returns. I do one draft and a polish. But if you looked at what I did every day, if we still had, you know, paper coming out of the typewriter and I was throwing it away, I'd have a trash can this high every every day <laughs> for my three hours, for just three yeah. hours. Because I revise that much as I go along. But when I get done, that's anywhere at its worst is 90%, but usually it's more like 95 to 98%. And then I just mm-hmm. go back and reread it, make correction. Sometimes I'll go, you know what? I could add a line back over here that will support the scene better. And, you know, now and again, you'll have something where maybe you, you do have 10 or 15 pages that aren't worth a damn. And you'll go in and, and revise them. Or you, you know, you feel you could do it better. But for me, multiple drafts just bores me and makes me want to quit. And I learned a long yeah. time ago, I was just getting too too down about the work, not wanting to do it. Oh, I've got this first, my vomit draft. And then I've got the other draft <laughs> and I would look at the, wait, wait a minute, this, this looks pretty good here. What's, and I just thought, yeah, the hell with that, you know? <laughs> and, and I write better this way than I did then. My prose is cleaner and uh, I, I think it has more depth. And I, I just, cause I am revising, but I'm doing it as right. I go. I'm not doing a bunch of multiple drafts. I, 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 I like think, you could go I ahead, think a lot of multiple drafts. I mean, the more you tweak it, the more you get away from the original ideal sometimes, you know, and it's just like, yeah, you go back to the original, you stay with what you went with originally. It's more natural. It's got a better flow to it. So yeah, I, I, I can think see so too. Multiple I think multiple drafts exceptions. is crazy. Yeah. There are exceptions. I have friends who do multiple drafts. It works fine for them. That's what they like to do. They like, they, and, and I've nothing against that, but what I am against is when somebody tells me that this, cause I do it this way, that's the right way. Or oh, yeah. uh, that, 
and I don't do that because I, I have a feeling there's some people do multiple drafts and need to work 12 hours a day. And mm. but I'm very disciplined when I get up, I go to work. I'm not kidding around. And uh, when I get done with that three hours later, and sometimes it's less than that. Sometimes I'll sit down and 10 pages will flow out and then I'll go back and revise that 10. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I get 20 pages. I may not do as much revision that day, but the next morning before I start, I reread it. And then right. I'm I'm back on track. I feel like there's that danger where people can be too meticulous with their work and mm. try to, like you said, make it too perfect. And then they're just never going to be happy with that final product. And like you, well, said, you want it perfect, but you have to realize that that doesn't happen. There's no such yeah. things as perfection because you look at something you wrote here, then 10 years later, you'd probably do it different. And I, mm-hmm. I've told my kids and, and my daughter, especially that as a writer, what I noticed and what a lot of writers I know noticed when they were starting is every six months they would look back and go, oh, my God, I'm so much better than that now. Because <laughs> you would jump quicker when you're, you know, yeah. when you're starting out. Now the, those paces are farther apart and they're not as noticeable. But I can look at more recent prose and go, that's much better prose. Is it a better mm-hmm. story? That depends on, on the reader. But um, I, I think that line per line, I'm a far better writer than I ever was. You feel like your craft is better than it used to be. Much better. Philip Jose Farmer, a uh, famous science fiction writer in my day when I was younger, and he's not as well known now as he as he once was. But you know, he told me something I've never forgotten, and I it's I, I adhere to it because I admired him so much. And he was a hit or miss writer. Uh, he he had a lot of stuff that was not good, but when he was on, he was a genius, a true genius. Not everybody slings that word around now, you know. Uh, yeah. I've heard people, oh, Hansdale, you're a genius. I said, yeah, Einstein and me. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but what I am, I'm, I'm good at what I do and I work hard. But Phil was a genius and uh, he just was inconsistent. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of it was he's having to make a living being a science fiction writer when science fiction paid mostly in a fart and a promise. And so he <laughs> he told me once, he said, if you want to be good, you got to crawl out on a limb and saw it off with you sitting on the wrong end. And oh, yeah. I thought, you know, right. You've got to take chances or otherwise mm-hmm. if you're trying to be safe all the time and there's nothing wrong with having a safe story or a safe novel now and then I've done it because that, that's what I wanted to write. That's what I felt. Right. But I have to I have to take chances. I have to reach out and do certain things after a certain period. I seem like I mine an I a sort of concept I have not an idea, but a concept. And I'll write enough novels within that concepts and within those principles, within that philosophical aspect of the story. And then I want to move on to something else. And it may be a year, maybe two years, you know, it may just be a few months or a few weeks. And one of the wonders and beauties of short stories is you can do that much more quickly and sooner. Yeah. You can write this one and write that one it has no, no relationship one to the other. Well, we're staying with that a little bit. Do you think uh, writers of today are just maybe scared or intimidated to offend people. So that's why they're, they're afraid to take those chances. Yeah, uh, have you ever come so. across think, it yourself? I, I mean, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that, you know, I, I, people say, you know, what, is, what are your politics? My politics tend to be liberal socially and, and moderate fiscally. That's where I am. But if you have, you, but you really can't tell by that unless you, it's individual things that you discuss. Right. But my bottom line is no matter what, when I write about racism, I, and, and I want to make an impact about racism, then I write mm-hmm. raw because okay. that's what I hear. And I'm not writing raw so I can say foul words or upset people right. or whatever. I want to upset them in a way, a different way than what they're talking about. I'm trying yeah. to upset them and saying, look, 
This stuff goes on. And just because you can be politically correct doesn't change this. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to always just write a entertaining story. I want it to be entertaining, but I want it to say something. I want it to have some impact. And that again, that's not all stories, but it's a certain level of my work and a certain kinds of things. And I think if you you aren't willing to offend people, then you ought not be a writer. It's not about pretty manners. That's not what it is. Right. And that doesn't give you the license. Necess- it gives you the license, but it doesn't give me a reason to be uh, politically incorrect just to be so. Uh, right. You yeah. know, it's like I want them like, in a proper way. <laughs> and I don't, you know, you got people now that divide every word and, uh, you know, this is what we think. Well, I don't give a fuck what you think about it. <laughs> Pardon my but no, you're what, good. I, what I, what I do think is that you have to have some personal power and instinct and ability to write what you want and an, and a reason to offend. Mm-hmm. Right. And not it's just almost, offensive for the sake of being offensive. Right. It's, there's a difference. Offend people them. the right way. <laughs> yeah. Offend people the right way. Offend yeah. people in the way that you want them to think about something. And some people never can. If you say, say shit, they can't think anything other than they've got a mouthful of it, you know, and you can't <laughs> do anything about people like that. And and it's, it's, it's the way, it's the way it ought to be really. I mean, I'll, if I see a review, uh, I, I think if you believe good reviews, you got to l- believe the bad ones. So people that get all worked up about reviews are wasting their energy. But I, you don't I do care see about one them. that says, oh, well, I, yeah, I don't like this. No, Well, I'll tell you in a minute. But I, I don't like <laughs> this because it's got foul language. In that, and I go, oh, mission accomplished, you yeah, know, because you that's not what my job is, you know. Uh, and if you all you want to do is sit down and, and have the lightest sort of entertainment all the time, that's fine. That's your choice. And there are things out there that will suit you, but that's not it, you know. But what were you saying? I'm sorry. I was going to say, so you really don't care about the bad reviews, the good reviews. They're all just there for you. Let me put it like this. Let me put it like, well, yeah. I mean, look at it this way. If you believe the good ones, you got to believe the bad ones. The only exceptions I make sometimes is I don't like a good one if I can tell that they've read the book very poorly. But, you know, a good review is like a tool. And that's the way you've got to look at it. It's yeah. fun to believe it for a few minutes, but it's a tool that helps you promote your book. And a bad mm-hmm. review doesn't really hurt you much. The only way bad reviews would bother me if they, is if that's all I got. If I got yeah. nothing but bad reviews or mostly bad reviews, and I might consider that I'm doing something wrong, but yet right. I might feel strongly enough to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with it. Because when I first started writing a lot of my stuff, editors didn't know what the hell to think about it. You know, they didn't know, uh, they go, oh my God, night they missed a horror show or something like that. You know, they read that and think, I don't want to read anything else by this guy. And But they were missing the story and the people who got it totally got it. And most people mm-hmm. got it. Most people understood. And I don't want to write stories and then have to give you the cliff notes that go with them. You know, right? Oh, yeah. you have to be able to make up your own mind. And, and sometimes people are going to misunderstand them, but that's not, you know, nothing you can do about that. And so, same thing with review. if a review is too. honest and they hate your work, it's honest. I had one the other mm-hmm. day and I had fans that were far upset about it. <laughs> yeah, I had more fans upset about it. And I said, oh, no, it was an honest review. I mean, and it's not a matter whether I agree with it or disagree with it. And in fact, I actually thought they made some good points is that it's not it's not the way you should look at it as a personal insult to you. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. we all want good reviews to help promote our books, but you can get so fanatic about that stuff that you begin to believe that they are you. 
They're not you. Right. It's a review. If a guy personally comes, like well, Lansdale, what an asshole. I, you know, I think <laughs> then that's personal. That's, that's a different. different. Thing. It's got nothing to do with yeah. the review. That's a totally different yeah. thing. But most of you get is just a everybody's right from their own perspective. You know what I mean? If you okay. don't like something, you don't like something and you're right from your own perspective. It's, your it's opinion, when you right. think your perspective is so perfect and overwhelming that nobody else can have another. That's when you're flawed. Yeah. You mentioned that review made some good points. Have you ever had a bad review that like gave you constructive criticism that you've ever incorporated going forward at all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've I've had good reviews that told me nothing. And then I've had good mm -hmm. reviews that told me things about myself that I was doing that I hadn't really noticed. And they were saying this works. And I would see it was consistent in several reviews. I go, okay, well, that's maybe something I ought to pay more attention to. But the problem with that, and I had a good friend that I thought did this, I won't say who, is they in his reviews, they would talk about his humor all the time, which was magnificent. And so the books begin to be just jokes. So he misread. Oh, yeah that whole thing about humor. It has yeah, yeah. to be, it was, it worked beautifully the way he did it. And, you know, we all, you know, we all make mistakes. I mean, I've done things where I felt like, okay, I carried that too far. I didn't carry that far enough, but I don't brood, you know, I'm, I'm moving on, which is another good thing about writing a lot of books. Mm -hmm. You said that sometimes good reviews don't help. Like if a group, if a review says this is perfect, that doesn't tell me anything. Same as, <laughs> yeah. A review says this book's trash. That doesn't tell me anything. Like explain why you think it's perfect or why no, you think it's about, trash. It's really not about whether it tells you anything or not. It, well, I don't think a review should be there to tell you anything necessarily. It's just that sometimes they do. It's just sometimes mm -hmm. the information on what they liked will tell you something in the same way the information on what somebody didn't like. But I think a review really is about, there's a difference in a critic and a reviewer. A reviewer yeah. is there to tell you what they like or didn't like. And if you read that same reviewer enough, then you begin to understand how they think. I remember mm -hmm. I had one reviewer that often disliked my work, but he disliked, he liked other people's work that, that I agreed with him. So I thought, okay, well, this guy's, they're all honest reviews and I'll, I'll pay attention when he reviews this person. But the problem now is your reviews are spread out. Everybody's got a blog's got a review. Everybody yeah. that's, that's <laughs> can type has got a review. So they don't mean like what they used to. And they just don't have that same impact. And the special places like Publishers Weekly and things like that, they don't have the impact either because they're diluted by all these other reviews. It's a, uh -huh. So it's a, it's a different world for one thing. And the reviews are important, but they're not the totality of it. My agent once said if he could trade all of my reviews for money, I'd be the richest writer <laughs> in the world because I had the best reviews of any writer he ever had. And overall, that's true. I have, yeah. I've had some bad ones, you know, I've had some bad ones, uh, you know, all the time here and there, but I've had more good ones, but those, but those good reviews translated into sales, but mm -hmm. there were people he had that got awful reviews that sold a lot more books. Yeah, so, bad you know, reviews you can, can sell books you don't too. want to blow yeah. that out of proportion even to begin with, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, bad reviews it's, can sell bad, it's just people don't care. And what most people don't understand is most people don't read reviews. People don't read yeah. reviews. That's we all read them because we're all part of a community. Right. But mm -hmm. most people don't read reviews. Why'd you buy that book? Oh, it's on the bestseller list. So that means it's the yep. best. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It it's on the bestseller. <laughs> According list. to who? If you get on it once, yeah. you're more likely to get on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so all of that you have to put it in perspective. 
you know, I'd love to have a bestseller because then I would have another one. And then, you know what? I would have more money and I would put that in my big bank account and I would have this monster <laughs> bank account, all these, these great, these great bestsellers. But the other side of it is, you know, I sell well and how much money do you need when you, when you get older, you sometimes need a little more because you got to worry about health and things like that. But in some ways I'm better off now than I've ever been, you know, mm -hmm. I'd rather not be getting older. And I don't mean that I'm, I'm waiting for a stall so the engine stalls out, but I'm just saying I'd rather be uh, where I could, if I could stay 45, I'd, I'd love that. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about Happen Leonard because that your new book's coming yep. out born for trouble. Right. Your sa Savage season was the first one. Did you, there it is. Did you write anything about Happen Leonard before Savage season or was that their first appearance? No, that was the first one. I didn't know there was a Leonard. They were just a hat novel. When I started uh -huh. it, Leonard showed up and I thought, I don't know who this guy is, but I kind of like him. And he showed up again the next morning. And then I found <laughs> out he was gay and, and half and half already knew that. And so that was an interesting dynamic uh, uh -huh. and that he was conservative and that half was uh, liberal and uh, they were East Texans and that they were both tough guys and both had had some martial arts training and uh, both, they were really good friends and they were going to become even better friends. And they were both, kind of impulsive they weren't stupid by any means but they 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 were the sort of person that didn't always learn from bad mistakes you know mm -hmm. if you were if you do something and you repeat it you generally get the same results but they weren't sure yeah. of that so, <laughs> so they tended to repeat things for a while and as the series goes on then they begin to learn more but they're uh you know haps idealistic and leonard's very realistic and pragmatic but as the right. years have gone on they, they've kind of mixed in their They've taught each other things, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Well, with them so, being so different with each other, I mean, that's what keeps it interesting. It keeps the relationship so. a little spicy at times. So that, that's what, you know, people are looking for, I think. So, Right, I hope so. And, you know, I've added so, other characters that are more important, but um, I had no idea it was going to be a series, and it was the first I'd written about them, and I thought I was just going to write this book about Hap and him being coerced by his wife and I didn't know he had a buddy but I thought you know what I'm going to need somebody to take care of his house and his dogs that'd be kind of a nice thing he's got and then that went not what happened at all they both were friends they had somebody else to take care of the house and the dogs you know so, so it's interesting that you didn't originally start out to have Leonard be a black gay character that's just something that sort of I just started to be a character story. at all he just showed yeah. up yeah and once he showed up he was his own man and he wasn't a sidekick you know, as time no. went on, you realize this isn't this isn't like uh, Lone Ranger and Tonto. It's like Lone Ranger and Lone Ranger or Tonto and Tonto, you know? Yeah. Was that sort of, I don't know, shocking is not the right word, but back when that came out, was it 90 that came out to have a black gay character? You know, was yes. that sort of a big deal? Yes. Yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't the first gay character in uh, yeah. fiction. You know, Joseph Hansen had Bandsetter, who was a gay detective, and he handled it in a very realistic straightforward very uh, honorable kind of way it was they were good novels i read a couple of those but it was the for some reason there were a lot of people that were like astonished at that but one of the things that i've had happen and numerous times is someone come up to me and said you know after reading your books i have a totally different idea about gay people i always thought they you know they weren't looking at them as people mm -hmm. they were looking at them as something or something yeah. else and uh, i had one person tell me that the uh, books of mine, I, and I think he was uh, referring primarily to Happen Leonard and helped him let go of hate. 
mm-hmm. for gays and for black people. He was no longer racist and no longer homophobic. And the books did it. And if that happened, they're worth all of them are worth writing. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, that kind of goes back to like, you know, it was a chance for you to create this character at a time where, you know, we didn't see a lot of characters like this. It was a chance for right. you. It, going back to what we were talking about earlier about taking that chance and offending people with the proper way. It, it was more That's like right. you did it in a way that it, it brought awareness to uh, the situation and, and i guess people started checking it out and, and and enjoying it so that that's a you know going back right. with a question we had earlier yeah well you you have to be fearless and i don't know if i was fearless or just stupid but i went in and <laughs> said this this is how i it's also how i heard people talk i was trying to write at least give the impression of the people I grew up with and how they talked and how Mm -hmm. they thought and how complex that was. Like my father was very much a racist, but he treated people with the same and went out of his way to help people black and white. So it was, you know, things aren't that simple and uh, it's Mm -hmm. hard. It's hard to figure those things out. My dad was illiterate. He couldn't read or write, which I think added to the, the vocalism, the racial vocalism, but he was just a good person. And so he treated people well. So, and I knew people later on that were very liberal minded and spoke all the liberal truths and treated everybody like shit and had, and wouldn't, (laughs) wouldn't want to be, you know, wouldn't want to be caught with a black person. They didn't want to be hanging with them. It's okay to talk about it from a philosophical, from a theoretical standpoint. And so, Uh uh, you know, somewhere you, you have people that are always a mixture, some more obvious than others, you know? Right. So were there any, any real life people that you drew inspiration from for Hap and for Leonard that you sort of maybe I, these I, have to make I mean, I was Hap's you. I was an anti war resistor and I was supposed to go to prison and uh, uh-huh. because I refused to go. And uh, they ended up giving me a one why after uh, some scary couple of weeks and uh, which is like not fit for military service. They thought I wouldn't do what they asked if I thought I didn't want to do it. And they were probably uh-huh. right, you know. And you can't have somebody like that in the military. And I'm not anti-military. I was anti that war. I just felt we had 54,000 people killed and they're like one of our greatest trade partners right now. And people go there for vacation. So it's hard yeah. to feel like that anything was achieved. Nothing was. And that saddens me. My brother uh, retired from the military and I, I, mm-hmm. I respect a strong military and believe in having a good military, but I don't believe that it's not the military I have a problem with in that respect. It's the people, the politicians that send people to do things that aren't always about, you know, these ideals that they profess. So uh-huh. that was it. Very much like half. And Leonard was based on two or three different people, um, two black people and one white person, actually. And then there were other little pieces that drifted into half and drifted into Leonard that were not me and not uh, these original three people, but other elements, you know. Uh-huh. I don't know if if this is your intention or not, but the banter between the two is my favorite aspects of Happy Litter. Just they're back and forth. There's my they just talk they just talk shit on each other, but in a brotherly, loving kind of way. And I just I find I think, it hilarious I that, every that time. That banter tells a story more than the narrative does. I, I love that. I love the fact that the dialogue I think between the two of them tell the story instead of relying so much on the narrative. You can Very really good. get what's going on with the dialogue between the two of them. So I, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I believe that too. I'm glad you noticed that. The, the one of the things too that I've always been willing to do is there used to be when they would teach you writing to say don't do anything that doesn't advance the plot, especially in mm-hmm. in what they call genre writing. And I don't agree with that. I think you also have got to go off trail sometimes and have people 
talk about what they like and what they do and what their experiences are, which gives you a greater understanding of that character so that when you're reading about them, they're more fulfilling. You know, uh-huh. I've in my life uh, where I grew up, uh, you know, my dad was a great storyteller. And, and like I say, he's my hero in spite of those racist flaws. I saw what kind of man he was, not, you know, not what he was saying, which were things that had been handed down to him, you know, like uh, a bad disease or something. Um, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, people were storytellers and storytellers are not always uh, linear. They're not all, you know, they're not always even literal. You know, it, it right. matters. A, a good, good stories have an element of folktale to them, have an element of re- real realism to them. They, they have an element of just pure action narrative. And yet they also have some, morality play to them, some sensibility uh, of, mm-hmm. of life and how to approach it. And, you know, at my best, I think that I managed to do those things reasonably well. Um, I know that's what I'm trying to do. And I've never lost that, that sort of Texas tall tale element from it. Um, you know, I, I think Robert E. Howard had that when he went in and wrote his stories and he was a Texan and he was born in an area that was, you know, got poor guy shot himself. But if had I had to live in Cross Plains, I would have shot myself. It's a <laughs> it's a bleak place, bleak as it can be, you know. And and in fact, if you want to get a good feel for that, there's a movie called uh, The Whole Wide World, which is mm-hmm. about Robert E. Howard and about him growing up in uh, Cross Plains. What well, about him being a grown man in Cross Plains? And it's based on he shall, he he who walks alone by Novelin Price, who was kind of his peripheral girlfriend, you know. So uh-huh. uh, I, I always related to him, even though my personality was different. You're talking about giving you know, these characters like backstories and personalities and stuff. That's how the readers connect with them. Like, you know, this is right. this character's favorite food and this person likes to go, you know, watch football or whatever it is. Instead, that doesn't advance the plot, but it gets you more invested in these characters. So when something happens to them in the plot, you know, a character yeah. dies or something bad happens. So yeah, you're more I, invested at that point. Right. And sometimes you have stories within stories. And I've had times when Hap or Leonard and our other characters in other stories would pause to tell you about an event in the past. And mm-hmm. yet somehow it relates to the present without having to be a, a, an actual cog in the plot wheel. Cause I don't yeah. plot that well. I'm a storyteller and I'm a storyteller. What I think that has a certain style and a certain voice and a really good storyteller has a voice like Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a storyteller. And like I said, like a story within a story that just adds to the realism of it. Cause that's how people are in real life. You'll be going to do this one specific goal, but you're going to tell different stories and stuff along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think you have a few more happen Leonard stories in you for the future? Are we going yeah. to see more from them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you will. Has it been difficult? I'm never absolute or definitive about things like that because I don't always know what I'm going to do, but I feel Uh that I've got, you know, some more Haplin or novels. Sure. Has it been difficult to keep writing about these same characters for however many years, all these different stories? No, because I I don't always write about them all the time. And, And when I take a year's off, like I'll take, I think I've had seven and eight years between them at one point, they don't age. I age, but they yeah. just stay right where I left them. It's but like I don't try to catch it up with the year that I left them. It's now, but they're still mm-hmm. not aged. So they're in their 50s. They're like 50, 51, and I'm 70. And I, that's not fair because they started out <laughs> about the same age. And, uh, they've got So, uh, yeah, I, I don't – do I have trouble with them? No. I, you know, I've had trouble writing some stories or some novels. They were harder than others. But I don't – I'm not someone who suffers as a writer particularly. 
I mean, I mm -hmm. can have aggravations and stuff, but I love doing it. And I get tired of people, you know, trying to talk about how they're crucified every morning to write. Cause I did, I did real work, a manual labor and things of working in the rose fields and aluminum chair factory and, and janitor and all that. So I'll oh, just shut up. You've got the life <laughs> of Riley. You're getting to make up stories and get paid for it. So, so with your routine now with you writing every morning, do you ever do you think writer's block is real? Is that something you ever suffer from, or, or do you just think it's? it's I don't it's, know if it's, it's real, to... but it. Yeah, I, I don't know yeah. that it's real, but it's not real for me so far, okay. you know. And I would have a feeling that it's not going to be real for me. Uh, you, I've never had writer's block. I've had a day where I couldn't get something to work, or I've had a day where I feel right. like, well, maybe I better take off today. I'm actually going to go to the movies today, or I'm I'm going to go out and do something or another instead of write, but that's rare. And a lot of times I'll find if I just switch over to another story or something that I have in my pile, you know, that mm -hmm. I've started, uh, I'll have a good day doing that and I'll be fine the next day. And sometimes I'll write in the morning on the, whatever my main project is. And then if I still feel I got energy and I got time, I'll switch over to something else and work on it for it for, for a while. But I've never had writer's block. No. And I don't believe in it for me now. Yeah. I'm not saying other people might not have it, but I'm not, I think most people, I think most people have, when they're having a hard time doing something, call it writer's block. And I think a lot of times when they don't write, they call it writer's block and they're not writing because they're not trying to write. Yeah. So with, with happen letter, is there something specific about those two characters that keeps drawing you back to want to tell more of their story? I like them. Yeah, <laughs> they're flawed. Said. They're really flawed human beings. I mean, they're essentially they're vigilantes, they're killers, or have been. But I I like them because there's an idealism about them, and it and they are morality plays, meaning that we know that their hearts are good. Which in reality, if you have people doing that, you wouldn't know really what they were or what they were doing. But from a standpoint mm -hmm. of fiction, we we know that, and I think that draws me back. And the the their relationship is the main thing. That's that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, why don't we move into the uh, Happen Leonard game we have? You'll play a game. <laughs> okay. Let's break it up a little bit. I'm, I probably do terrible at this. I was I was uh, telling Brad <laughs> earlier that I've uh, you know been asked questions before, and I'll tell them, no, no, that's not right. And then they go, well, if you said it right, well, you know, you know I did it. <laughs> and, uh, oh. and I also have there's certain contradictions in the series here and there, minor yeah. ones, but they're there. So again, these are answers that I got off the internet. So the internet <laughs> might be wrong. So I'm not yeah. saying you're right you, you or wrong. Can prove the internet they right or wrong. Prove the yeah. internet right or wrong. Okay. All right, so we're gonna play okay. a little bit of uh, Happen Leonard trivia here. Hold on, let's see. I got a fancy little video. I'm glad Jason. you fixed the uh, misspelling you had earlier. On yeah, spelled one. Leonard wrong <laughs> earlier. <laughs> it was a good catch. All right, so I've got ten questions for you. I, they're not too hard, I don't think. So, All number right. one, how old was Hap when we first meet him in Savage Season? Mm. <laughs> 40? 38? 40. 40? I don't know. I don't know. What's 40, the answer? 40s. 40s. Okay, what I, 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 I said. Ballpark. Yeah. All right. Question two. Yeah, what type of cookie? Right. <laughs> question two. What type of cookie is Leonard's favorite? Uh, vanilla, anything cookies. vanilla. Vanilla wafers is, is like his favorite, but he also likes yeah. just vanilla cookies. And he'll he he switch hits. 
He pisses half off because he doesn't share the cookies. He eats them all by himself. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And, and and people don't know a lot of times, but half likes animal crackers. Does he? <laughs> all right, number three. But he's just not as malicious about them. He'll share them, <laughs> and Leonard will expect him to share them, but he won't. He won't share his cookies very easily. So that's that's the brother rivalry back and forth of not sharing the cookies and sharing the cookies and stuff. That's just like me and my brother. <laughs> and what's the next question? So number three. How many main it novels is. are, it is, right. are in the Happen? Right. How many main novels are in the Happen yeah. Leonard series? Twelve. Are you there? Twelve. Okay. Twelve is right. Can you name well, the novels in order? You're not gonna make him do them in order, are you? <laughs> I bet he can. Can do you it. hear? Can me? you name the novel? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I'm here. I lost you. Uh, 12 novels. 12 novels. Can you name the main novels in order? Savage Season, Mucho Mojo, Two Bear Mambo, Bad Chili, Rumble Tumble, Captain's Outrageous, um, Vanilla Ride, uh, Devil Red. That's that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Can you not hear me? Have I lost you? Oh, we got oh, you. We I got hear you. Let me let me let me start over. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, we can hear you. No. Yes. Here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Maybe you can't hear us. Yeah. Can you hear us now? Savage Season, Mucho Mojo, Two Bear Mambo, Bad Chili, Rumble Tumble. Yep. Um, uh, Captain's Outrageous, Vanilla Ride, Devil Red, Honky Tonk Samurai, Rusty Puppy. Um, Yeah. uh, Jack Rabbit, Smile, and uh, Elephant of Surprise. Nice. Jay didn't have faith in you. He didn't think you'd be able to do it. That's a lot. (laughs) All right, number five. In the novella Coco Butternut, what breed of dog is Coco Butternut? (laughs) Ooh, uh, Dachshund. Dachshund, yeah. Number six, in which novel? Also known as Wiener Dog, Dachshund. Wiener Dog. (laughs) Wiener Dog. (laughs) The mummified dog. Number six, in which novel does the extreme henchman known as Hammerhead appear? Oh, <laughs> wow. I don't know. Captain's outrageous. <laughs> okay. All right. Number seven. I did not know that. We stumped him. We stumped him. Number seven, the criminal angel is a female blank. Fill in the blank. Is a female assassin? 
Oh, Angel. Oh, she's she's a bodybuilder. Bodybuilder. Female, female bodybuilder, yeah. All right, number eight. Who initially published the limited edition of Rumble Tumble? Cemetery Dance? Subterranean Press. Ah, okay. Bad dog. <laughs> All right. This one's another, it's another fill in the blank. Happen Leonard get mixed up in a revivalist cult that believes Jesus will return flanked by blank. Well, I couldn't hear it. The last part. Happen Leonard get mixed up in a revivalist cult that believes Jesus will return flanked by what? Flying saucer. <laughs> it was an army of lizard men. An army of lizard men. An army of lizard men. Oh, from, yeah, uh, Jack that's right. from, from Jack yeah, Rabbit's Jack Rabbit smile. Yeah, see, I didn't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a bizarre thing, too. An army of lizard men coming back with Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the final question. Number 10, in the, in the novella Hoodoo Harry, what words are painted in large white letters on the side of the missing bookmobile? Mm, I don't remember. Look in your book. It's in Born for Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so on the side oh, of the bookmobile, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's oh, said okay. rolling literature. <laughs> oh, okay. I would have never thought of that. Never remembered that. <laughs> So two of those stories. So that's all. That's all for the. That's all for the questions. I, I, I think he passed. Still, I think he, he passed. I think a couple, he, but I think he passed. I think you know your own stuff. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Sweating it out a little bit there. Yeah. Not well enough, obviously. <laughs> so two of those are a cocoa butternut and a hoodoo Harry. Those are in the new one, Born for Trouble. That's right. Mm -hmm. And are were yeah, those? Are, right. So all all those have been previously re released right their novellas cocoa butternut hoodoo harry sad onions the briar patch boogie and cold cotton right and uh there's sad onions was in a short story anthology so were all those um were they all out of print now and you're collecting them into one new collection yes yes was it was it hard to narrow those down and pick those, which ones you wanted to put in there or those kind of the only ones that were out of print? Yeah, that was it. <laughs> they were the only ones that were out of print. And that was, and that was pretty much it for the, for that length that hasn't already been collected. You know, I have mm -hmm. short stories about the characters that deal with them in their youth that are, are among my favorite, my favorite uh, happen Leonard's are uh, blood and lemonade and of mice and minestrone. Yeah, yeah. I read That's this. Right. And blood and lemonade. Came out. I got it too somewhere. I like how all the covers match up—the black and red, white together—from Tachyon. Right. right. So does is Tachyon? And they put out Got it too. <laughs> oh, you do have. I, okay. I, I got. I didn't know you had all those, Brad. I do. I got them. I guess when they came out with Tachyon. So is, is Tachyon, do they do all the Happen Leonard stuff? Is that the publisher for Happen Leonard? 
No, um, they do the Happen Leonard short pieces, but uh, my okay. publisher's Little Brown Mahalala. They do, they do the novels. The novels, and then, okay. Uh, also, Knopf Vintage did the original mm. uh, six, first six. They reprinted them. They didn't do them. They reprinted them. They were originally mm. with Warner, Mysterious Press, and then they moved to Knopf, and now they're in the vintage Black Lizard line, but the later Happen Leonards are with Mohalla. This is Black uh, Lizard Line, yeah. right? Vintage right. Crime. So yeah. There's two. There's two publishers for the novels and one for the short fiction. Right. So you said you like writing the Happen Leonard when they're younger. Like this was this collection was awesome of Mice and Mistrone. I really liked Thank getting you. to know them. Yeah, this is, I do prefer it. This was my introduction to Happen Leonard, so I knew I started. I guess when they were teenagers, starting out. Yeah. And uh, do you think blood someone should uh, start? Is they're even younger? Even younger? Okay. Do you think someone should start from the very beginning if they're going to hop into Happen Leonard, or do they go in order, or should they just find like a short story collection and go with it first, or what? They're they're basically in order uh, of the short the short stories that they move around a little bit, but they give you an overall view of their younger life. Okay. You understand why they are, are who they are and how they became who they are. Right. Do you feel like you, you write I am the also working on a book about Leonard that just has Leonard in it. Uh, and nice. I've written three or four stories. They're all real brief and I'm going to put them together. I hope if I have the time and continue to do them and have a, a collection of stories just about Leonard. Nice. I like Leonard. I think, I think I like Leonard more than Hap. Ha Leonard cracks me up. A lot of people do. Yeah. It's like the origin story. Nice. <laughs> so, when you write the the collections like these two, where they are younger, do you feel like you try to write the characters differently, or you write them the same as when they're adults? Yeah. Well, I I, I feel like we are different when we're younger, and but you know the seeds of who you are are always there, and so you try to stay consistent with that. But I, you know, you can see Hap change, Leonard, and doesn't change as much in an obvious way but he changes too after vietnam mm -hmm. especially but uh hap you see him change in increments and but yet you always recognize it's him yeah do you have a favorite story of hap and leonard either a novel or a short story or is it too hard to pick mm, that's tough uh, yeah there's there's one i think it's called uh well, Blood and Lemonade is one of my very favorites with just Hap. Uh, and uh -huh. then the, the that's in Blood and Lemonade, obviously. And then there's another story uh, called, I think it's called The Night Before. And it's when uh, they're just going fishing. They're just talking. That's the whole thing. It's just them talking because Leonard's going to go to the military the next day. And uh -huh. Hap's uh, not long off for going to prison. Or, 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 or No, I take it back. They, they, uh, they have... Uh, there's that, but there's another story, and I can't remember the name where, where they where Hap uh, has come out of prison and Leonard has come out of the military, and they meet up to talk, and they never really talk too much directly about the war or about prison, but you know what they're talking about. And it's, right. uh, it's a purely character-driven story, and I, I think it's one of my favorites. But I guess, I guess Blood and Lemonade is my favorite of the short stories, you know, uh, I like all of the short stories. To me, they're almost like a, if you put them together, almost like a novel. Yeah. Oh yeah. The one where they uh, just got out of the war and back from prison, that's the watering shed, right? Is that in this one, the watering shed? 
Is that the one I'm no, thinking that's, of? No, that's, that is the story, but that's not the one I'm talking about. Okay. There's one that's in uh, Mice and Minestrone. And it's, I, th I think it's the very last story in the book of Mice and Minestrone. The Sabine was high. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, the Sabine was high. That's the one. This one was cool because you have you have recipes in here in the back of the book for yes. you know what they're eating and stuff. Was that just something you wanted to do with this one right. particularly or or what inspired that? Yeah, it was it was funny. My daughter did the recipes and she wrote all the the thing that sounds kind of like Hap's voice, but that's Casey. That's one good example of how much our voices are alike, you know, mm -hmm. is that we wanted to say what they, what kind of food they ate. And it was certain things were mentioned in the stories. And then those foods were done. And then Casey did kind of a, a, a an video of her making some of the recipes, which is just yeah. funny. It's just adorable because she's, she's not <laughs> that great a, a, a cook, you know, <laughs> but she's, got, she's gotten to be. And, uh, but in that she's, she's very funny trying to make all that stuff work, you know, and uh, you can still see those online somewhere. I think they're on Tachyon's website or Tachyon's YouTube page. Cause I watched a few of them. She was making yeah, like a chili or something right. one time. Yeah. So right, are these, right. are these, um, recipes are these things that you've eaten before or are they just solely made up for the stories? Yes. Are they? Yes. No, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. I mean, um, those are, are legitimate recipes. They're not necessarily all healthy because they come from a different era, <laughs> but, uh, they're the sort of food that happened when I ate growing up. Yeah. The funniest one is a uh, Shanks cherry bombs. It's got a warning. It could cause vomiting, dehydration, pregnancy, and death. <laughs> and death. Got and death. And death. It's got yeah. the, the Everclear from the moonshine. Just that cracked me up. Right. It could cause death. Yeah. <laughs> or pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Casey. She she put all the menus uh, together. <laughs> all the recipes. How did the uh, the TV series uh, come to be with Happen Leonard? The um, Jim Mickle, who is a director, and and Nick Demichi, who is a actor and a writer, uh, they came to me years ago wanting to do Cold in July, which is not a Happen Leonard book. Right. And uh, I was really impressed with them, and uh, I had seen the first movie they had done. Yep. And uh, I said, okay, we'll, we'll do that. And seven years later, they did it. But before that, I for seven years, me and a director, John Irvin, tried to get it off the ground. And we couldn't. I wrote that screenplay. And eventually, by the time they kept watering the screenplay down, I didn't care. And it didn't get made. Then it went a seven years fallow. Then Jim yeah. and Nick came along, and they had it for seven years. And then finally, they got it made. And, and then that led to me, you know, having a, a connection with them. And then Lowell Northrop. Uh, who is was my co-producer, uh, a co-executive producer on Happen Leonard, had come to me to go do do Savage Season as a movie, and so I wrote a script. Mm -hmm. Well, that never happened, but it all just sort of coalesced into this one project for Sundance, which became the Happen Leonard series and went for three seasons. And it was their I most popular three show. Seasons, right? They canceled yeah. it anyway. Yeah, they canceled yeah. it anyway, even when it was their most popular show. Uh, yeah, I don't know why networks do that, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you see, you Netflix can see it on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, Netflix has those three seasons though. It's still they're still there. Did you have much say in like the production and like casting and all that kind of stuff for the show? 
Well, not casting. They showed me the casting and more as a courtesy and I, I made comments and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think they, they kind of know what they want to do and, and, uh, are moving in that direction. And I understand that to a great extent. Uh, I had a lot more input in the first season cause I was on the set the whole time. The second season mm-hmm. I wasn't. And then the third season I was on there briefly. So, um, the first season still my favorite, uh, because I was right. there a lot and I made some good friends on the first season. And also Jim was also the story runner. So they changed it. And uh, when they changed, they uh, uh, and they got a very good showrunner, John, John Worth, but they, I didn't have the same connection with him. So he didn't know me, didn't understand me. So I, I wasn't on the set as much, but I um, uh, and we're good friends now. You know, we got to know each other, but the uh, uh, they listened to me. I'll give them that. I always said mm-hmm. that I, I got they let me say what I wanted to say and then they got to do what they wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a lot of uh, final say uh, working with uh, Cold in July and, and Bubba Hotep? Or is it a different different no. situation for you? Or? No, no, but you know, I I just I just feel they did such a good job. Don Coscarelli, you know, he did his own thing, and and uh, uh, I was on the set. My son and I were on the set uh, a lot for the, that one. But you know, Don had written a script. I'd had the chance to see the script. Uh, I had been asked to do a script, which I chose not to do because I was in the Writers Guild, and that he didn't, it couldn't pay enough for the you know, budget that they had for me to do it. But um, I, I loved everybody on it, and that's how Bruce and I became friends, and how I, I got to at least meet Ossie Davis, which was wonderful. And so um, I didn't really say anything unless Don asked me. Once in a while, they they might ask me something, you know. Um, right. and cold in July, I didn't have a whole lot to say there either. I taught, uh, Sam Shepard, one finger lock technique that he used in the, <laughs> in the movie. But other than that, I, you know, if they asked me something, I'd say, and that didn't mean they always did what I suggested, but I felt, I yeah. felt I was in good hands with them. You know, um, I, I can be annoying about stuff like that because I, I want it done my way because of course I'm the smart guy. Cause I, I invented, <laughs> but on the yeah. other hand, uh, and the, I always love it. They always say, well, we're going to work in the spirit of, and I always say that means bend over. You're about to get it. Because <laughs> you might as well up, bend over because spirit of can be anything, but they treated me well. And they did, they did more than that. They were very close to the, the novel and the series. And certainly they did make changes though. Right. Yeah. Well, you want to have I mean, your hands in it. Cause these are, it's your baby that they're, they're messing with, you know, your creation, yeah, your baby, and, and, and you want to have some say in it. If I'm trying to direct one right now based on a story I wrote that my son adapted and I hope to direct it, you know, that's called the projectionist and that's my plan. And if I can raise a, a million two, then I'm ready to go. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, I really want to do that, too. But I, I understand the difference. I've always hated when people say, you know, they're not the same thing. Of course, they're not. And sometimes yeah. you cannot adapt something literally but sometimes you can adapt it a lot closer than they like to let on because everybody wants to put their finger in the pie so they can say Mm -hmm. i'm the one that poked that hole you know (laughs) were you pretty satisfied with the outcome then of of both of those bubba hotep and uh, all of them and also incident on and off of mountain road uh which was done for masters of horror was really good um i thought that uh love death and robots treated me very well in the uh, animation um I was very happy when I wrote for Batman. I thought that they, you know, they treated me with now. great yeah. respect and, and uh, they, they, they did my scripts pretty much like I wrote them, but I, my scripts were also based on ideas and things that they had uh, constructs that they had. 
but uh, I've I've been very very happy for the most part. I've had a little bit of something here and there I wasn't as happy with, but nearly all film stuff for me, I've been very very fortunate. Did you have to change your style, your writing style, much for the Batman series? Like step away from what you normally no, not the way really. you write. No, I didn't. I didn't. I I, I remember there's a um, you know there's a collection of those things where Bruce Tim talks about. I think it's uh, read my lips, and he was saying that they wish they could show my screenplays. You know, could could mm. actually put the screenplay up there. Uh, I think I write interesting screenplays. I think I write good screenplays, and sometimes I'll drop a little humor in there that's not going to be in the film, but it's for the reader or. Uh, you know, a description in the way I describe something that will make them feel it and see it. But the reader's not going to see that. Uh, but I don't ever tell them something that can't be visualized. I just have to say it in my own way, you know. Your, I used uh, to buddy, love... Your buddy Chad in the chat here is uh, going on about your name, about the yeah. R and your your initial there. Yeah. What What is the, the power of the, the power R? Of R. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Well, you know, Dean Koontz dropped the R in his though many years ago. He he dropped the R. Look and look where he went. He did just fine. Um, <laughs> Let's not yeah, forget no, about but, Stephen R. King. <laughs> yeah, do you know about <laughs> Stephen R. King? Yeah, yeah. He, he's that other guy. The, uh, yeah, yeah he's George. The other guy. We, used call, we used to call George Ra Railroad Martin. George Railroad <laughs> Martin. Yeah. Back when we knew him in the seventies, you know, in seventies and eighties, that's the, that was always the joke, which I'm sure he's very tired of hearing. But it's uh, George <laughs> Railroad. So I used to love the Batman animated series. Did you work on that a lot, or is it just a couple episodes? I did four episodes. Well, I did three for that, and I did one for Batman and Robin Adventures, which followed that, and I uh -huh. did uh, one Superman, uh, and I did the movie Son of Batman, which is out okay. there. Um, on, I don't know, on one of the platforms. Um, I love doing it, man. I'd do it right now. You know, were you I a big, were you a big comic it. book fan growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Comic books are why I'm a writer and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs sealed the deal, but, uh, it was, um, reading comics when I was four years old, I started trying to draw them and write them and I've, I've done it ever since. Nice. Yeah. So usually we don't really ask this, but since you are, an influence to a lot of writers now, like Chad Lusky, your big influence on him, like the neon Allen stuff. Who I love are some him. of your influences. Chad's great. I love Chad. Well, he's a great, great writer too. I mean, you know, he's a guy that needs to get more attention. Yeah. You know, and, mm -hmm. and it's not that he hadn't got any, it's just that he needs more. Uh, all my favorites were, you know, when I was a kid, it was uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs without a doubt, you know, and, mm -hmm. and some of those stories, of course you outgrow them in ways, but there is a certain, there was a way he wrote in first person that I really believed those stories. And I tried to carry that over into my first person work and I tried to carry his momentum, but Raymond Chandler, Ray Bradbury, Harper Lee, mm -hmm. Hemingway, yeah. Fitzgerald, uh, you know, uh, um, Steinbeck, uh, Carson McCullers, um, Hammett, Kane. Um, what I'm trying to think, what the other, um, uh, um, well, I don't know if I said Flannery O'Connor. I probably did, but she would be one. There, Robert Block was a big influence. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. You know, that whole Matheson, Charles Beaumont bunch, Rod Serling for the TV show, not necessarily for the writing itself, um, although he wrote some ter terrific scripts and screenplays and stuff. So, yeah, um, all of those writers were very important to me. Fred Brown, um, good grief. I, I could go on and on. You know, <laughs> I, 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 
I, I think be a four hour me, show. Sort of, yeah, I get numb thinking about all the writers <laughs> who have. Uh, yeah, Philip Jose Farmer and um, uh, good grief, uh, James James Kane is a big influence as is. Raymond Chandler. I said them earlier, but just to reiterate, um, but it, writers in all kinds of genres. Mm -hmm. uh, aside from Chad, uh, any other ones from today, like some of the uh, indie small press that you're uh, you check out that you're excited about? Well, he's outgrown it, but Stephen Graham Jones is like you know one of my my favorites, and and uh, Sean Cosby, you know, is is terrific, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, he writes this. Hey Cosby, I'm sorry, and. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, there's uh, um, there's Andy Roush. I think that's how you say his name. Who I think is more attention. Um, he's written more than I've read, but uh, the couple I've read and some short stories I think are really, really good. So those are some of the new ones that just popped in my mind immediately. You know. Do you keep track of, uh, totally off subject, do you keep track of all the awards you win? <laughs> no, I was telling my, I've, I realize I've lost some of my Bram Stokers. You know, I, I've got four you misses won, somewhere. Like and I don't know where my Edgar is. Uh, I'm looking at him now. I don't know where the Edgar is. I don't, I don't know where my Herodotus is. Uh, I have my Raymond <laughs> Lifetime achievement i think it's 35 of them but I, I you know i could be overstating or understating i don't know i, I care about them but you know that's not my life is 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 right. just for awards i care about them i respect them i love it when i win one but i'm never i never think about oh am i gonna win you know it doesn't that doesn't even occur to me most of the time i don't even know i'm up for them uh one of yeah. my favorites though the other day is the texas institute of letters they wrote me and they said we want you to know that you're a finalist for this award well i didn't even know i was up for the award <laughs> right. i mean i knew my book was for the award but i mean i didn't i didn't even know that it had got that far and then then it says and you're a finalist for this and then at the bottom it says but we've already picked the winner and it's so and so and i just made me laugh out loud it's like you're a finalist but you're wrong motherfucker <laughs> It's kind of like just dangling the carrot in front of your face a little bit. Like... <laughs> yeah. I am currently uh, up for a, the poetry for the Bram Stoker up for the poetry uh, collection. So nice. nice. Is that you said earlier? That's the first poetry you've done. Yeah. Was that like a completely different writing experience than writing prose? Not as much as I would have thought. No. Mm-hmm. So you, what, you said earlier, well, go ahead, Jay. I was going to say, well, what's in this poetry? Is it like dark stuff about life or is it like rhyme time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny too. There's humor. There's dark stuff about life. There's some of them. I think a lot of my poems that tend to be almost like little flash fiction stories, you know? Okay. And then, then some of them are, are, you know, I don't try to rhyme poetry. I do have a few that, that rhyme and they've appeared, uh, Part of them, about half of them have appeared in other places, you know, beforehand and were collected. And then the other 50, I wrote in two mornings because I had the book. They wanted to do the book. And I thought, well, hell, I don't have enough poems. <laughs> Just knocked them out. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. But you said earlier you read a lot. So what are you what are you reading right now? Blood and Treasure. 
uh, by Tom Clavin and, and another guy as a partner. I can't remember the other, but it, it's a nonfiction book about the settling of the frontier with Daniel Boone as the main focus. And uh, okay. it's it's really, really fascinating and interesting. Before that, I read Ace Atkins' last Spencer novel, Bye Bye Baby. And uh, I'm reading a old comic book collection called Sword of the Atom, which is about the character of the Atom as Gil Kane was involved with that. And uh, um, I just finished something else up. For some reason, I'm not thinking of it right now that I I liked pretty well. Oh, I uh, reread Elmore Leonard's uh, City Primeval, High Noon in Detroit City. And I like that one because it's such a banal character that's still dangerous. I've only read one of his, um, and then there were none, I think is what it was called. Because I think uh, Tarantino was supposed to adapt that so. into a movie. <laughs> so, so somebody's. I don't think reading. I don't recognize that that one, and then there were none by that title. He did do one. Jackie Brown was, I think, uh, was Jackie Brown uh, Rum Punch, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, how often, for, from the stuff you're reading, how often do you. Uh, does it usually trigger an ideal in your head for your next book? Do you draw a lot of inspiration from what you're reading? Yeah, I do. I also draw it from newspapers. I draw it from uh, comments that people say, uh, offhand things. I, I draw it from nonfiction. I, I, sometimes I draw it from uh, movies or, or TV right. shows or old radio shows or comics. It can come from almost anything. You, I was watching the uh, the trailer for All Hell the Popcorn King, and you had a comment in there that yeah. your wife would give you the most unhealthy popcorn, and none of us are nightmares, so you'd have these weird dreams. Is that actually something that happened? Right. She'd give you that crazy popcorn? Yeah, and I'd get up the next morning and write those down, and I sold every one of them. Um, <laughs> but, but my health was important, so I had to back off those. And also, I think that they taught me how to do that. It's sort of like... Once I learned how to do that, I could write flash, flash fiction. I could write absurdist stories. I was selling them to Twilight Zone and magazine mm-hmm. and other places like that and anthologies. But I wrote a, you know, a fistful of uh, more than a fistful of stories from popcorn. What kind of popcorn the was novel, this? It was giving you drive-in popcorn. Yeah. What kind of popcorn was this that was giving you these crazy dreams? It's just standard popcorn, but the, the key was to have the worst lard you could find. Uh, it used to be a place at Kroger's that they used to sell. I think it's been like, you know, put on the list that they're not this probably environmentally unsound. Uh, they used to have a thing called Krogo, and Krogo is just damn near lard. And you just slap that lard in the hot grease, and then in goes the popcorn. And uh, um, yeah, it's not good for you. And then we'd eat a big bag of it, and you would. We would overindulge, and the overindulge yeah. was what caused the dream. You didn't know when to but stop. You know, I could have probably, it, yeah, no. It might have been if I'd eaten cupcakes, it had done the same thing if I'd eaten them. <laughs> right. right. She had crazy lard hallucinations that came up with all these great yeah. stories. I think the lard had something to do with it, yeah. <laughs> I figured if I wanted to live to be, you know, uh, 40, I might ought to give that up. <laughs> yeah. So is that where the nickname The Popcorn King came from was – from that popcorn, yeah, yeah and uh, because from the no- novel, the drive-in, because the uh-huh. antagonist is called the Popcorn King, and he's a somewhat um, alien construct due to lightning, and it's it's a little, very hard to explain. But the Popcorn yeah. King comes from that. Yeah, nice. Well, Joe, That's this one has of been my fun. Cult. Well, your cult books. <laughs> this has been fun. It's been a pleasure. 
Uh, we really appreciate the fact that you uh, put some time aside to just talk with these two dopes with microphones here <laughs> uh, this Friday night. Uh, we oh, really hope you come you back and really hope you come back in the future. Uh, it's been our pleasure. So thank you very much. I mean, you're legendary. Thank you, so. you very much. So thank you so much for coming by. Uh, Brad, do you have anything else before we wrap it up here? Yeah. When does, uh, when does Born for Trouble come out so everybody can go ahead and pray over that? Is it, is it out now? It's now. Nice. Great. Yeah. So it's, it's five novellas. I think literature. officially it may be at the end of the month, but people are, everybody's showing it. So everybody's getting it. So. Right. <laughs> they're getting the it somehow. Sure. <laughs> yeah. They somehow are, they're yeah. getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so when, when uh, later on, Brad will have some links down below so people could get in the right direction and order Thank it you. and get it and all that stuff and all that fun stuff. So, uh, that's going to do it, guys. We cannot thank Joe enough for stopping by. It's been another great, thank exciting episode of Paper Cuts. Thanks to everyone in the chat. And, of course, this is going to be shown on Brad's channel and my channel uh, tonight, tomorrow, all weekend. And it's going to be up there forever. And, of course, we're going to make a podcast out of it. Forever. So for those, <laughs> yeah. For those who like audio only, there will be a podcast of this before the weekend's over. So, again, everyone, thank you so much for stopping by. And that's it. It's a wrap. This has been another exciting episode of Paper Cuts. Until we meet again, please stay safe. See ya. CJ, love Thank you. you guys. Bye. <laughs>